You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. I want to invite you guys to open up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to finish and conclude in our series called The Normal Church. And, um, you know, I'm not from the, from the South, but I probably passed 17 steeples on the way to church today that we are not in lacking of, of churches or definitions of churches or ideals of what churches are. There's so many denominations, right? There's so many different ways of doing church. Uh, one body, one Christ, one baptism. But if we're not careful, there can be a drift in our understanding of what God has told us to do. You know, I can tell you right now, like as a dad, when you tell your kids, hey, like go and clean your room and go and brush your teeth, it's funny how over time there's a dissonance there's a drift of the original intent of what the, what the request is. Um, and so sometimes I think even in the South, we can inherit church or anywhere. We can inherit church, the idea of church, before we inherit Christ and what Christ says about church. And so that's where we're at right now is in Acts chapter 2 to say, God, what do you think of when you think of the word church? Like, what if I put down my idea, my agenda, my presuppositions and, and, and prejudices about church, and I just let you redefine what normal means um, in the context of church. And so this is our final installment. Um, this message today is focused on what church means outside a church, outside of Sunday, outside of 10 to 11:30 or 11:45 if the preacher gets going. Outside of this space, what does church mean? Church, church is not, as, as we read in the scriptures, what we think about in our family and our value set, church is not stuck in Sunday, and it's certainly not stuck in Camelot. The Holy Spirit, the kingdom of God is everywhere. It's here and it's now. And it necessarily has implications not just for 10 o'clock on Sunday, but for 10 o'clock on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and every day beyond. That's what, that's what this is about. And so this, this story that we're going to read today about Peter and John on their way to church, they're interrupted by an event and church starts early for them. And so my goal, my hope would be to look at the scripture and be refreshed and re-envisioned and recalibrated for what church might look like beyond 10 to 11.30. So Acts chapter 3, verse 3 starts where it says, One day Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at 3 in the afternoon. So um, 3 in the afternoon, when I think about this, it's probably the most tired I ever am. If you want to see me at my worst, come give me a call at 3 in the afternoon on any given day. I'm almost asleep. I don't know. There's something that's going on, I think, with having four kids and just being an adult. Three o'clock is a heavy hour. I wish I lived in France and sometimes because I think from three to five, they just shut everything down, which is what we all should be doing and just sipping espresso and um, smoking French cigarettes. I wouldn't do that, but you might. I don't know. Um, But three o'clock in the afternoon, just sort of like the no-go zone, just like the time when everybody's not expecting anything. God's expecting something big. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple. So the, the, the proposition here is that people are, you know, heading towards the temple. They're most reflecting on deeper things, not the kind of laundry lists of life, but the actual deep things of God. And potentially, this would be the best place for a person to sit and wait for generosity or for piety, because this is when people have their minds on things of heaven and and not of earth. And so he's at the temple gate, and he's waiting for handouts for charity. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asks them for money. And Peter looked straight at him, as did John. And Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Peter says to him, 
Silver and gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. So, so much more than, you know, a nonprofit, so much more than a donation, so much more than a tip or a quarter in the jar. I mean, this guy gets more than he bargained for. He gets a actual, like, it's, it's this authoritative, heaven and earth shaking, you know, message of, of, of power that's delivered to this guy. And not only the concept of power, but the actual actualization, the manifestation of power. And the guy is able to get up and walk. Verse 7, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up. And instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. And then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. I don't know if it's just my age or my demographic or the marketing campaign, but like Chick-fil-A has really called my number these days. Like something like Sundays is a tough day for me for Chick-fil-A to be down the street here, but like Chick-fil-A, something they've done in the, in the lemonade they sell or the cookies in that little bag, they really just get you. I don't know if you're with me on this, but like Chick-fil-A is by far like three times more uh, appetizing to me than like a Zaxby's or a McDonald's. And nothing against those places or a Subway, but like Chick-fil-A has made a lot out of, out of just a fast food chain restaurant. And I think it's just that the intentionalism, like in Chick-fil-A, when you go in there, you get the same thing when you go in there everywhere you go. You could go to Tennessee or California, or if they have one in California, I think they do, and you could go to one in Woodruff Road or Pelham Road or Haywood Road, and it's literally the same thing. There's this kind of, a, this specific attention to detail that you'll get in Chick-fil-A that you just don't get at Zaxby's. You know what I mean? Like the flowers on the table and that little cup that they give you with the exact amount of sauces and the receipt is always folded nicely in there. And every time you say thank you, they always say, my pleasure. And sometimes when you say, I appreciate that, then they get phased and they don't know what to do because they, they don't know what to do in that, that level of intentionalism. But I, there's, a, there's like, a, this is my point, is there's a district manager at McDonald's with a little clipboard and the little button up and, he's, and he comes into the, the restaurant and maybe the burgers are somewhat the same and maybe the soda is somewhat the same and the fries kind of the same. But like if you were to go in the bathroom, like, there's no telling what you're going to find in a, in a McDonald's bathroom. There's just no telling what's, what's in there. I mean, it's literally blind. This poor guy, Roger, whoever he is, he's the district supervisor, and he comes in, he's hoping to see something good, let alone the same, but he has no idea what he's going to find in that bathroom. And for the most part, my experience has been that Chick-fil-A is the same. Like, when you get in there, it's not that it's perfect or maybe necessarily what you like, but it's intentional, like I set out, I had a plan, and I delivered on the plan. I executed the thing that I wanted to execute. But here's the trick about Chick-fil-A. Here's the trick, is that, this is, this is deep, right? It's profound, but, but the, the, the intentionalism of Chick-fil-A, the structure of it actually gives way to spontaneity. So me and Peter Boyle, not this Peter, but Peter Boyle goes to our church, great guy, serves with groups, does huddles. We meet every now and again on Chick-fil-A on Haywood Road. And every time when you go to Chick-fil-A and Haywood Road, you're going to meet a girl there. She works there named Maggie. Now, Maggie, I don't know how old she is, maybe 17 or 18, super childlike, super fun, super funny. And she just goes around, and her whole job, you'll notice this at every Chick-fil-A, there's like, it's called a, like a dining room host. 
And literally down Woodruff Road, if you go there right now, it says $13 an hour if you like to host people. That's literally what the job is. So you get paid $13 an hour apparently, and your only job is you're not cooking chicken, you're not cleaning the bathrooms, you're not doing fries, you're not doing milkshakes. You're there just to pay attention, to be present with people. Now, the district manager, he's got his own job. He's got a protocol of things that he does, 50 things on the checklist that need to be clean washed. But Maggie's job is to not have anything to do so she can just be with people. So, every, so we look forward to this. So me and Peter, we hang out, and we're talking about, you know, serious things of the kingdom and life and ministry and just all of our plans that go on with church and that sort of thing, which is planning is great, and that's kind of what I want to talk about today. But we start to love and anticipate when Maggie interrupts the plan. When Maggie, who is hired to do this, jumps into the conversation and just starts talking about the 30-piece nugget and how her favorite thing is the fruit cup except on Tuesdays and how she went to go see Avengers and movies and any other thing that she wants to talk about because that's her job. Her job is to just have fun and to start relationships, to start conversation because marketers know that that is the number one thing that keeps people at restaurants isn't necessarily just the chicken, but it's the relationships. So she starts talking to us and And how many of you guys know that relationship is contagious? Connection is contagious. We stop on the channels when we go through TV when somebody's laughing or doing something spontaneous because that feels like life to us. It's the opposite of Tom Brokaw reading off a script. It's like somebody's doing something that looks like it has life. I think I'll stop here. And then, you know, like Mary Lee, I always joke with her. It's like when we see somebody over here like having a conversation and we're over here by ourselves and we hear this laughter, you're kind of like, wait, I want to laugh. What's going on over here? Like, this is fun. I want to be part of this. So as soon as Maggie leaves to go get the refills on the drinks, this guy named David, who's probably like 65 and served in in Vietnam, I think, or served in the military and flew helicopters, comes over and he starts talking about helicopter stories. And so now I'm just not talking about ministry. I'm not talking about family. I'm not talking about movies. I'm talking about helicopters. And he starts talking to me, and now we start getting deep, like kind of the kind of things of the kingdom. He starts asking me about my thoughts, because, you know, when you tell people you're a preacher, they get all uncomfortable, they don't, you know, they don't know what to do, and they start asking you questions about your opinions, because apparently I'm supposed to be opinionated now. So I'm trying to come up with opinions, by the way. If you have any, just let me know. And so David comes by, and he starts asking me about my opinions about, like, Syrian nationalists and how, like, you know, Muslim people have this thing where, you know, they should kill infidels and all this stuff, and asks me my opinion about this. And so we start talking about forgiveness and we start talking about compassion and we start talking about the cross and we start talking about all the types of things that preachers dream to talk about on Sunday mornings. We talk about them on Thursday afternoon at Chick-fil-A because Maggie started a conversation which created connection, which led to relationship, which always leads to kingdom. I will tell you that if you don't have stories like this in your life, I would probably bet that that's because you don't have enough relationship in life. Relationship is where kingdom happens. Kingdom doesn't happen outside of relationship. Jesus never healed anyone he wasn't in proximity with. God always heals people through healing, through touch, and relationship is the context by which the kingdom of God comes and reigns. After this conversation, we just get done talking about life and laughter and funniness and movies and preaching and and church and forgiveness, which has all to do with everything. They're not disintegrated. They're completely integrated. On the follow-up, of course, there's another family who says, I'm going to start to pray for your church. I appreciate it, which y'all we're talking about, and that really stirs me and encourages my faith, and where do you guys go to church, and maybe we'll come and visit, and I want to pray for your church, all because Maggie interrupted the structure. She decided to take the plan and improvise on it, and so Brian, Brian Johnson, who leads worship out in a church called Bethel out in Redding, California, the, the, the Bethel church, you know, like, puts out CDs, kind of like Hillsong, and they just put out this album that's called 
Moments. And essentially what Moments is, is this CD that has all of their normal songs, but next to it, you know, it says featuring blah, blah, blah. And there's parentheses, and all of the, the CDs, all the albums on this CD say spontaneous next to them. So if you're not familiar or uncomfortable with this, what this basically means is that in any given set in Bethel, there's these moments where there's chord charts and structures and click tracks and, and sermon times and series times, and they got the whole thing planned. I mean, this is a charismatic church, but has very predictable patterns in their service. But inside of those patterns, they create and carve Maggie type of moments where they interrupt the schedule so that poetic or maybe prophetic things can be sung. So if you go and listen to one of the songs on this album, which I was running through the other day, this girl, I, don't, I think it's Stephanie Gretzinger, maybe, she's singing the song that I've heard a hundred times before, but it's live, and the live albums have that extra touch, and you can hear the people interacting in the stage. She says, your moment here is now, it's breaking through the night, your breakthrough's here, the night is gone, the sun has come. Something like this, way more poetic than the way that I just read it, but something to this to this effect, sings it out off the page, words she's never said before, didn't plan to say them before, probably wouldn't remember them afterwards, sings in a spontaneous moment, and this 35-year-old guy in the front starts screaming, yeah, as if that was his song. So what has happened? What's happened is, is that we've created a structure, but inside the structure we've given room and space for spontaneity, for interruption, and in that moment, I would argue that because, not in spite of, but because of the structure that was established, because of the safety in the structure that was built, that when this girl starts singing this song, because they know it's not on the page, because it can't be predicted, because it doesn't have pretense to it, because it doesn't have a brand and a vision and a plan and all this stuff, because it felt like she's having a conversation, it got relational. And there wasn't anything in between the person in the stage and the person on the front row. There became this connection. And prophetically, what was accomplished in that song could never have been accomplished through the plan. There had to be. But here's, here's the other the trick of it, right? All you type B personalities are not nudging your spouses like, hey, you see, spontaneity and just organic as all the sheep. No, 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 no. Years of musical training. Years of experiencing failure and what goes wrong and why that's the wrong node and why that's the wrong word and why that helps this person but not that person. Years of sophisticated equipping has gone on for that moment. So the mistake could be that we plan all of our ducks in a row and never see anything momentous or kingdom or connection. But the other mistake is that we think that everything's all organic and we go sloppy. And there isn't planning. The John Mayers of the world will tell you that the reason why they can play with such fluidity with their improvisation and their jazz chords and their B9s, diminished sevenths, and add this and minus that or whatever it is that they do is because they've done scales for years. Like Steph Curry, which I, you know, I'm a huge basketball fan, or LeBron James, you see these tricks and these shots, and now because of the advent of YouTube, you see behind the scenes, and we learn more and more, like, that's not luck. The reason why that ball went in the basket is because they shoot a thousand shots a day. So what am I saying? Is that oftentimes we think that structure and spontaneity are enemies, but they're actually friends. And the best expression of structure and system and protocol is improvisation. The power of God, the kingdom of God, does not oftentimes choose first and foremost to act through plans. It typically asks through spontaneity, but through spontaneity that flows through planning, that flows through structure. So this is what uh, Acts chapter 3 says about the apostles' day that day. 
which is not on accident. It seems like it's very fluid, but it is not on accident. One day, and I love that it starts off that day because that way, because one day just sounds like Morgan Freeman's reading it, and it sounds like a story, and it sounds like something awesome is about to happen, but also suggests that maybe it could happen any other day too, right, to any other person. Like just this one day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon where the French people are drinking coffee and Oliver's taking a nap. This is when Peter and John are going up to the temple. And the temple was something that people regularly past the cross would attend, religiously attend, ritualistically, like on your iCal schedule, don't miss it for two hours a day. You're not driving. You're not kind of throwing up prayers and processing worries before the Lord. You are shutting the door, Matthew 6, with nothing else you're doing other than uninterrupted prayer. Diligent, planned, structured, not interrupted, non-negotiable prayer. Nine in the morning, three in the afternoon, for an hour. Inside of that prayer, the Jewish custom, beyond the cross, has schematics of how all that works. 15 minutes of meditation, 30 minutes of, 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 of prayer and supplication, and then 15 minutes of adoration. This is not just kind of like whatever I feel like I want to talk about, maybe I'll pray theologically or not. I mean, this has structure to it. And some of that makes us nervous because if there's one thing that we value and want to fight for and contend for is the idea that our connection with God is relational, not religious. But then I would point to you and say, how original are we when we go on dates with our spouses, right? Or when we go out with our friends. It's like, hey, let's hang out. And it's not like, hey, are we going to go to Kansas or Utah? Are we going to go to the moon? It's like, we're going to go eat. Come on. Like, that's what we're doing. I mean, obviously, like, prayer is, it has to be this magical thing. It's like, you're going to close your eyes, and you're going to use words. I mean, I like, we like to be spontaneous, and we think that we're not religious. And I don't like rituals, but we are all creatures of habit. I guarantee you, if I asked you, what do you do when you wake up? How do you get to work in the morning? Conversations about what do you say to your spouse? You might think that you're Mr. Jazz, improvisational person, but you probably do one of five things, maybe. You probably wear one of five pair of shoes. You probably go one of five routes. And if I told you that tomorrow your route at work got canceled and you had to take a detour, that'd probably freak you out a lot because we're made to be creatures of habit. But here's where the problem is, is that when we make other things not of God habits and not recognize that they're religious and habits, and then we allow our devotion to be serendipitous and based on spontaneity, we actually give more life to the things we have structure in, and we kill out the things of faith and devotion that we need to have spontaneity in. So, so we're intentional about, when we get up, I get on the phone every day. I guarantee you, you have things like this, where in the morning, within the first hour of your day, I guarantee you will get on your iPhone, and you will check the same three apps. And so then we turn around and say, well, that's, you know, I don't want to be religious, I don't want to pray, that's ritualistic. Well, Life is religious. Life is pattern. Life is structured. The question is, what do you put into your structure? What have you decided ahead of time to not leave up to serendipitous, spontaneous moments? Where, it's not do you have structure, it's what do you put your structure to? And so these men made their ethos the way that Jesus did. It was his custom to pray. It was in his mechanism. It, was, it, was, it wasn't, you don't have to put a, an agenda marker to check your phone, okay? Wonder list, check my phone. Okay, I checked my phone. Like, the things that you give your devotion to are, are habit, habitual, but they're not ritualistic. So it says, verse two, now a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, 
where he was put every day to beg from those going to the temple. And when he saw Peter and John, he asks them for money. So as I was talking before, the thing about the kingdom of heaven, here's what makes me really nervous. Jesus' favorite topic was the kingdom of heaven. And although he preaches the kingdom of heaven is like probably, I don't know, 90 times in any given gospel, he can't really have a definition for it because it's too big. He can only say it's like, he can't say it is. It's like a guy who went out and scattered seed. It's like a guy, a woman who put in leaven into the bread. It's like a fisherman who did such and such. It's like a, a person that found, you know, gold in a field. He has to like liken it to things and describe it without being able to actually define it. Because if you tried to define it, you'd have be a hard time probably defining it as well. I mean, what is it? It's like anything that's in heaven down here. That's what you're trying to define. So it's real easy. Just write a definition. Define what heaven is. <laughs> All right. Like it's a super hard you know, very laborious thing to be able to do, and even Jesus can't and doesn't choose to define it. The kingdom of heaven is just like these things. The kingdom of heaven meets 10 lepers. The kingdom of heaven heals all sorts of people, both in and outside the church. And therefore, the kingdom of heaven, which we have seen Jesus preach about far before Peter ever acted into it, is way bigger than this church or way bigger than this temple, or way bigger than Peter's life. It's way bigger than all things. As a matter of fact, there's nothing really that isn't influenced by the kingdom of heaven. If you pick up Jim Collins' book, Good to Great, which is not a Christian book, you're going to find Christian principles in there because the kingdom of heaven touches everything. And so here's what makes me nervous. Here's what makes me nervous. When my idea of ministry, not sometimes, but always, involves somebody coming to church to be able to experience the kingdom of heaven, that they have to get out of their nine to five, that they have to get out of their classroom, that they have to get out of their school, that they have to get out of their life and take a break from quote unquote normal everyday life to come into church so that ministry can start, we might have too small of a view of what the kingdom of heaven is. The kingdom of heaven is so much bigger than the church. It's so much bigger than the church ever will be. It's so much bigger than, than everything because it's heaven. It's the biggest possible scenario you could imagine. It's bigger than earth already, right? And so it makes me nervous that if heaven has to be in a church, it just makes me nervous because it's basically saying heaven can't happen unless man is in control. Like, that's what really makes me nervous about it, is that when people are saying, like, I want to do ministry in my house, and the only way that I can do ministry is if someone comes into my house, it creates this scenario that basically kingdom can only happen if I'm in control, when in fact, it's the exact opposite. Peter and John were so out of control in terms of what they could actually predict and respond to and maintain and so forth. So this guy comes up to him, and I love the fact that Jesus always, as I said before, through people, heals through proximity, heals through relationship, heals through connection, heals through people stopping their day of the logistics and programs and priorities of life to prioritize relationship. The kingdom of heaven is not far behind. You know why? Because in relationships, you always have people, and in people, you always have needs. And there's very little uh, places anywhere in the Bible where the kingdom of heaven meets somebody outside of a need. He is, he is just, he, it's irresistible to him. The kingdom of heaven flows to the lowest place. It's, it's in your weakness that my strength is made perfect, is what Corinthians says, is that the kingdom of heaven meets people in needs, and we can't find out needs until there's a relationship. So the relationship happens, although it's a brief one, it's a very, it's a very kind of quick one, and this connection happens. And it says this, we see the relationship. Peter says, Peter looks straight at this guy. John looks straight at the eye contact, like the eye is the gateway to the soul, this locking of, of connection and relationship. And Peter emphasizes this. 
goes out of his way. Look at me. I'm the captain now. No, he doesn't say that. He says, look at me. Look at us. I want you to see me. Says, and, and the guy says he's expecting to get something from them, getting piety, getting you know, charity. And Peter says, silver or gold I do not have. What I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Get up and walk. When this guy looks at him, if you, if you were to get into his skin and look at Peter, I just wonder what you would see. I mean, are we expecting to see thunderbolts and lightning? Are we expecting to see like the... <laughs> The, the, the sands of time, I mean, the eternity in there, is God in there dancing with the Holy Spirit? I mean, like, what's in his eyes that's so special? There's all sorts of implication. I guess you could take it to the Lord and decide what you think, but I have an opinion on it. If you, if you want to ask me, and my opinion is, he probably just sees another person. He sees another guy, most recently has been a fisherman, on his way to the temple, living his normal life, who has fears, doubts, disagreements with others, hopes, ambitions, sins, but he sees those human, human interactions, those human elements of this person's eyes. You can tell a lot about a person when you look them in the eyes. You know, that's what they tell you to do in job interviews. Like eye contact is a huge deal. And he looks into this person's eyes and I think he just sees a man. And I think that's part of the way that God spontaneously interacts with people. I think the reason, some of the reason why spontaneity is so precious to the kingdom of God is because it's the place where people can't control things when it's just people. Like I'm at the wedding the other day and it's this beautiful wedding. We're outside. It's a bunch of money. You guys know what weddings are, right? So we stand out there and I do my opening prayer. And all of a sudden for the 10 minutes of the entire beautiful day, we're out here on Rutherford Road, the clouds part out and this thunderstorm from like Cuba just sets in. And I was like, Lord, is that you? What are you doing? Why are you interrupting this sweet couple's wedding? And it's like that movie about time. You know, we all like rush inside and have this romantic moment. And, and we do the wedding and the ceremony. And it's like the, be- I told the group, it's like the best wedding I've ever done. Everyone's so, everyone's laughing, having fun, connecting because God interrupted this, the schedule. And what happens? The pretense, the control, the, 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 all of my plans of what I, the great eloquent things that I wanted to say, they all go out the window. We're playing jazz. We gotta play jazz. And I hope we're prepared to play jazz. I hope we prayed that day. I hope that we're ready for this kind of thing. I hope that we've, we've imagined the kingdom coming in every, every given moment because he can come in every given moment and will come in the moments that you're not expecting it. The bad news for type B personalities is that he usually prefers to bring the kingdom of heaven through interruptions. When humans are just being human, when they can't defer to their strategies, when, when we're all kind of leveled by the fact that everybody gets rained on, and PhD people, and people that are failed out of college, and people that are struggling through life, and people that are, some of these CrossFitters are just at this wedding are just buff and like crazy. All types of people under the same reign, having to deal with the same circumstance. It's in the spontaneous interruptions of life that some of the most powerful connection happens, and therefore the greatest kingdom moments. I don't think that he saw anything perfect or awesome in Peter. I think that he saw weakness and frailty, but the verse comes alive in Corinthians. It's in those weak moments that I'm strongest. It's in those places where I'm going to interrupt and engage the most. Verse seven, taking him by the right hand, he helped him up and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with him to the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. I can't jump by this this passage and just interpret it into my message without needing to stay on it and just say this one side tangential thought. You should always hold preachers and churches accountable to letting the Bible say what it wants to say 
at any given time. And it can't be overspoken how profoundly impossible and miraculous the course of events in this scripture is at this point. The temptation for me and you as an interpreter of the Bible is to preach our circumstance into this thing and say this is a metaphor for our jobs being healed. It's not a metaphor. It's ankles and feet and spines getting healed, period. And the temptation is that we go through life and there's a lot of heartache and a lot of people that don't get healed and we have to deal with that when when pregnancies don't work out and when prayers don't get answered and there is a theology of suffering. We have to understand and come to terms with that, that sort of stuff. But we can't allow the circumstances and the exception to the norm to tell the Bible what to do. We have to tell the Bible, we have to allow the Bible to tell our circumstances what they are. And we can't ever lose sight of this. And so I just, I, I don't, I can't skirt through this message like I've done in, in times past and just move through it as though it's like, yeah, he's just kind of healing our, our marriages. No, he's healing ankles. He's got a person that has never walked before, infirmed, walking by the end of the day. That's what happened with Jesus. It was the same situation, a guy that was paralyzed since birth in John 5 in the very shadow of the colonnade of the highest religious format there, now in the same place with Peter and the same power that raised Christ from the dead and caused healing to flow through his hands towards that paralytic in John 5 is the same power that Peter now walks in and all the other little Jesuses in this room. This is the power that we have. We can't dumb it down. We can't mitigate it. We can't underestimate it. We can't set our expectations low so our hearts wouldn't be hurt by it. He's either risen from the dead or he's not. And that Holy Spirit is either in us or it's not. And so verse 9, the conclusion of the story, this is what I believe is the heartbeat and the aim of this passage and what extension really means. It's not a magic show. It's not just to prove that God's right and we're wrong. It's, it's to generate life. Like this is why I came, to give you life and life abundant. It's not about the improv and the singing and the words of knowledge and the prophecy and the power. It's about life being restored. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful, and they were filled with wonder and amazement the way I would add that the church was always supposed to be, full of wonder and amazement, not so full of plans and seriousness and and pride and ego and control that it doesn't have enough mystery in it to be amazing, to have awe and wonder in its daily life. I used to have a, a teacher in high school, the kind of like dead poet society, Robin Williams type of, type of guy. And it's probably a good reason why I took history class on day one. I remember he's sort of, sort of like a round Mr. Magoo looking guy, you know what I mean? Had like a squiggly voice and played into it. You know, he's a character. Probably could have taken theater. He's got white hair. His name's Mr. Casper. We call him Casper Dan. And he played football, or he coached football, excuse me. I don't think he ever played football, but he was just a, he was just a, a waddly dude. You know what I'm saying? And fun and funny, and the kids loved him. And he told stories and just made history fun. He'd get up on the table, and it's like first, year, first day, like sophomore year, he's like talking about Paul Revere. Like Paul Revere, the guy with the, I mean, he talked for an hour and 45 minutes, block scheduling about Paul Revere. And I was like sucked in, man. He used to let us eat snacks. I'm just eating Pringles. I'm not even taking notes. I'm just listening to Paul Revere in the way that you've never heard Paul Revere before. I don't even know if it's true, but it was like this amazing thing about Paul Revere. And it's like American studies. I remember we used to read like Great Gatsby during the 20s and The Catcher in the Rye during the 50s, and, and it was beautiful. Like he just, it was as much principle as poetry. Like it was like there's history that's about facts and proposition, but there's history that's about story and life and comes off the page and tells us about who we are and where we fit. And that's the way that history, in my opinion, as a history teacher, is supposed to get taught. 
Some of you guys have had teachers like that. Some of you guys can't wait to go to class. Some of you guys want to skip school every single day because the teacher's like, and in 1467, King Hubert III. Like, you know, that kind of like the facts without the life. And this is what I think, like, God comes into it. Like, there's a Peter story, there's a lame beggar story, there's a Holy Spirit story, there's us and a kingdom of heaven story. But I think that God looks at the bigger story and he's like, why is my church that's supposed to be the center of hope and healing and life so full of deadness and boredom? Kids, like, don't want to go to church because it's boring, you know? We, like, fall asleep in church, like, why is this place that's supposed to be so full of life and love and forgiveness and adventure, why is it so, so full of, of, of just not any of that stuff? And then the other irony is that why is this person who's literally just next to the center of, of hope and healing is literally sitting here broken and destitute? He says, this is not right. Like, I just look at, if God were to read this passage and not know the end of it, which, of course, he always does, but look at it from a neutral standpoint, he'd just say, this is not right. This is not how it should be. This is not how it should be. There should be life and, and vitality. This is the best story ever told. This is, the, this is the most powerful, highest stakes, greatest battle, biggest, most important, loving, what life is all about, kingdom of heaven thing. And yet we've got broken people on the street and bored people in the church. I need to do something about this. This is what the power of God comes to do. And so Peter does his thing and the Holy Spirit does his, his thing. And, and structure gives way to spontaneity. And the man is healed, but even more than the man is healed. And we don't even know what he does with that healing. That's the thing about the kingdom of heaven is like 10 lepers will get healed, but only nine of them actually come back and say thank you. It doesn't necessarily mean that there is this kind of great ambitious thing that happens. It's just celebration happens because it's better than not celebrating. That's what the kingdom of heaven looks like. And for, for this person on this three o'clock in the afternoon, this person is healed and the, the, the life and the vitality and the hope and the awe and wonder is restored back into the church, the way that Casper Dan, you know, attempted to bring life and vitality back into the history room. But Casper Dan read a lot of books. Like he knew his timeline. That's the thing is that he didn't just make up stories because he didn't have anything to say. He made up the stories because he understood it deeper than anyone else in the room. And he could tell the stories because he understood the depth of what those stories. When Peter came to that guy at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's not the first time he made the decision to heal that guy. It wasn't at three in the afternoon. It was the three years that he spent with Jesus. It was the prayer, the prayers that he had done every day for two hours at a time that he had, you know, in athletics, they tell you to visualize things. They tell you to visualize things in sports or actually like firemen. They visualize burning buildings. They teach you to do this so that literally firemen can predict where airways are and where, you know, backdrafts can come from because they're taught to visualize like what it's actually gonna be like Prayer is not just an upwards conversation, it's a downward listening conversation. And Peter had, in my opinion, had already seen this happen before it actually came to pass. He was already prepared. He had already made the decision in his heart and in his head. This wasn't just a spontaneous moment. This was the culmination of doctrine and structure and ethos and rhythm. He was so prepared that he was present. He was available for the moment. To close the series in the normal church, the normal church is a place where there is exalting of the presence of Jesus, not just the principles of Jesus, but meeting face to face and surrendering our lives to him. Equipping is about family. It's about not only teaching the church, but loving and caring for the church as you would in a family relationship, not just in a teacher relationship. And the extension value is not trusting in man's plans and provision to generate the kingdom 
but instead to come in weakness and allow the spontaneity and interruptions of life for the kingdom of God to do what man and plans could never do. The kingdom of God is not stuck in a church. It extends, it bursts forth and doesn't wait for us, honestly. It's happening right now to the persons and the appointments and the interruptions that you're about to talk to this week. It's happening right now, whether we're there or not. That's why we preach about the kingdom of God. We don't create the kingdom of God. We tell people that it's there because it's always been there. It's always been caring and talking to and, and, and hosting and, and loving and, and healing people. And so these are the three words that we use to, to equip in terms of our church that we've talked about already. The kingdom of God extends through people right where we are, through proximity. But those people are just not up for kind of like whatever it is that's the flavor of the day. People that are walking in power are prepared to walk in power. The first word is prayer. It's, it's, the, it's the prioritization in the day to not allow my circumstance to be the first interaction. By the time I get to my circumstance, I already have his word hidden inside of my heart so I know what to tell my circumstance to do lest my circumstance tell me what to do. A person is not prepared. We are not prepared. Peter didn't just show up unprepared at three o'clock in the afternoon to see the kingdom of heaven Verse fourth, the reason why John Mayer can solo, the reason why Michael Jordan can dribble and shoot from the, and dunk from the free throw line, and the reason why Peter stands in power is because he is prepared to host power. And that can't be underestimated. But at the same time, the people, the, the, the ethos of prayer needs to also be prepared for interruption because by the time he gets, and this is the second word, which is presence, the time he gets to the presence of people, within the context of people, he's so prepared, he's actually ready to get interrupted because he knows the interruptions are actually assignments. And he actually sees, instead of it being an interruption of his preparedness and prayer, it's actually a culmination and a fruition of it. And he can look at that guy and say, I've actually already prayed for you, even though I've never met you before. Stand up and walk. What I don't have, I can't give you. But what I can give you is, in Jesus Christ, get up and walk. And that is where the third word, power, comes in. Power is where human strength meets human weakness. I can't find but three instances. You ready? One, the walking on water. Two, the transformation of wine into water. Three, the transfiguration on the hill, these, on the mountain. These are all high power glory moments that don't exactly directly have to do with human need, although I do think that they cultivate faith, which is a human need for all people. But the other 99% of the healings that are going on and aren't even listed in John, you know what they all have in common? They come and meet the human needs. And that's what power is. It's a but God moment, a thing that cannot be done by human plans and provision. It's a place where weakness gives way to strength. And Peter and Paul know that as much prayer and as much devotion and ethos as they give to their rhythms and daily life of seeking and saturating and surrendering and what God is saying, at the end of the day, they have nothing to give that man except for a weak moment before the Lord. And he says, look at me in the eyes. And in that eye contact, I believe, is the sermon of the day. It's a moment when the man understood from him to Peter, whatever that, that distance is, that he has nothing more than me other than faith. And so in that faith is an opportunity for weakness to become God's strength, not just another back, pat on the back, not another dime in the canteen or whatever it is, not just another food or meal on the table, but a man healed. And a man, hopefully, that would go back to the place of the temple Come back to the place of prayer and not just be healed, but to be a healer and to heal others and recognize that there isn't strength to be given to God or added to his coffers of power, but only to be received by him in the places of human weakness. So are we people that are planned? Are we people that are prayerful? Are we people that are present enough to see power move forward? 
There's absolutely ways that us as husbands or wives can work so hard at our job and create the structures in life that are required for family. By the way, we need type A personalities. I hope you're hearing me on this. In church, when we serve and when we give and when we, when we go to our jobs and see the kingdom coming, we need to have predictability because families thrive on predictability. Christmas is a family moment because it's predictable. Thanksgiving is a family moment because it's predictable. You doing bedtime and cooking your dinner at the same time is a family moment, and that's why it's predictable. But here's the other thing. You could talk to any number of people in this church that do foster care, and they will tell you that there is nothing predictable about foster care. It is a giant interruption. So what does that tell you? Is that there's parts of life that need to be predictable, but parts of the kingdom of heaven and earth cannot be reached unless we're prepared for lots of interruptions. Lots of space that we can't control because the power of God moves in those places in in spontaneity. I want to encourage you in closing that the power of God is here as it ever was in Acts chapter 3, and it moves through our weakness and our supplication to say, I can't, but you can. I'm not, but you are. That's where the power of God is. And if we're so plan A and type A that we'd have no margin, I know a guy that, that, that insists on making 30-minute windows before, between his appointments because he says, I can't afford to not have spontaneity for my day, not only for me, but for others. I want to encourage you, serve consistently. It's not ungodly to be diligent and consistent and to give consistently and to attend church, not just based on feelings or if I feel like, to be consistent. That's part of spirituality. Like, that didn't stop at the cross. We take that relationship stuff too far, and we're like, oh, well, it's just relationship, and I'm flowing. It's like, well, try that with your spouse and see how long that goes. There needs to be consistency in family. And so part of the scripture is saying, go to the temple. Like, just pray. I don't know what to pray about. Just pray. Because the checking account always, or the savings account always lends itself towards the checking account. There will be an interruption, and we will not be prepared for the interruptions and the spontaneity of life and the improvisation and the prophetic sides of life if we're not prepared in prayer. If we don't have scriptures known, we're not ready to prophesy. We're not ready to give hope to the hopeless and speak in the moment if we're not already saturated in the ongoing ethos of prayer and, and supplication in scripture. Let me pray for us, and then I just have a quick announcement um, before we go. Holy Spirit, I thank you. Your kingdom of heaven is here, and it's, it's giving hope to the hopeless, and it's giving um, identity and name to lost uh, children, to, to orphans and widows. Um, I thank you that it's telling a good news message. I thank you that it takes Im- impossible situations, um, and it's making them new, and it's healing them, and it's doing impossible things through normal everyday people, through your church in every three o'clock afternoon type of appointments. I'm just asking for each of us, as you equip us in this season, in this week, to make it so obvious, I'm asking for each person on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday to literally come to a meeting and be like, this is exactly what Oliver was talking about on Sunday. I can't believe it happened this quickly. I thank you for deliveries of divine appointments that represent power so we can never take credit for it. So we can never see that we planned it. We can never see that it has to do with our diligence alone, that it only has to do with our faith given freely to you and your grace meeting us perfectly in our weakness. I thank you for weak moments where you're strong and you get credit and there's awe and wonder and mystery restored in the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please subscribe and leave us feedback on our iTunes channel. For more information about our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks again for exalting Jesus with us.